Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul says this, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. And so he's saying here that our coming together, it should be for the better. But I have to ask a question, better for whom? You know, is it better for me or better for what? Uh, and we'll hopefully when we get done with this chapter, I'll ask that question again. Hopefully we'll all know what the answer is. So our coming together should be for the better. Verse 18, he says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. So when you come together, it's for a purpose. When we come together, it's for a purpose. What is the purpose? Well, we come together as a church. And, you know, when you think of church, what do you think of? You think of a building with stained glass windows, or you think of some auditorium with, you know, uh, fog machines and real loud music. What do, you, what do you think of when you think of a church? Well, the word church is ecclesia, and it means to be called out. You and I, we are the church. We're the called out ones. Well, what are we called out from? We're called out from the world, its values, and its system. So we're called out of the world. We're called by and to Christ in the fellowship of his son. And we're called out from our isolation and called into an individual church, called into a local body of believers a fellowship. That's what we're called into. We're called out of the world and we're called into this, this family, this local family that we have right here, Calvary Chapel, Rochester. You know, the Lord has given each one of us gifts, talents, um, and, and those are for receiving encouragement. Hopefully we encourage one another with them and support one another. But, you know, we're to use those gifts and, and the talents. And God has provided a local body of believers for us to exercise those gifts in and those talents. They're for others. Later on when we get to chapter 12, Paul is teaching about the gifts of the Spirit. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. There's a purpose behind it. It's for the, it's for the encouragement of the church. And so we're called out of the world and we're called into this body of believers. But Paul here says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Would he say that about our church? Hey, I hear that there's divisions at Calvary Chapel Rochester, and I believe it. Would he say that about us? Why does Paul in part believe it for the Corinthians? Well, you'll recall back in chapter 1, Paul started out saying, I, I, now I say this, that each one of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So there was these divisions along different Bible teachers or different apostles. And, and you had the Paul Club and you had the Apollos Club. And, and they, were, they were causing division among themselves. And Paul asked that question in chapter 1, is Christ divided? You see, they were creating a division that shouldn't have existed within the church. In chapter 12, verse 25, he says that there should be no schism in the body. And that's, that's the word for division that we see here. Schisma is the Greek word. And it means to split, to tear. 
It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a violence that you hear, that division, that tearing. And it's the very opposite of unity and oneness. We've been called into oneness in the body of Christ here, this local body of Christ, and division is tearing that apart. You see, division runs counter to God's design for the ecclesia, for the church. It runs counter to what God's plan was for the church. So verse 19, he says, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And you go, wait a minute. Divisions, as we talked about in the verse before, schisms, they're bad. There shouldn't be schisms. But now Paul is saying, hey, there must be factions. What's going on here, Paul? Does that mean that factions are necessary? No, they're not. But they're prophesied that they will be. I like what John Gill said, and I got it up on the screen here. These, the apostles said, must be. He's talking about factions. They must be because God has decreed that they shall, whose counsel is immutable and his purpose unalterable. And since this always was the case, that there were false prophets under the former dispensation, it must be expected that false teachers will arise in the churches now, bringing in damnable heresies. And since Satan is always busy to sow the tears of false doctrine and human nature both being weak and wicked is so susceptible thereof and so easily imposed upon and deceived it cannot be thought that it should be otherwise in other words the enemy the devil he's bringing in false teachings into the church and our flesh our human flesh we kind of we kind of you know it's like it's fertile ground for that and so he says that it will happen now what is factions if you have a king james version bible the word is heresies and maybe right away, when you hear heresy, you think something pops up in your mind. What, what does heresy mean? Well, the word comes from herio, and it means to choose or select. And heresy is a form of religious worship, or it's a discipline, or it's an opinion. It's contrasted to schisma, which was divisions, okay? Factions are contrasted to divisions. Uh, schisms is an actual tearing apart. And uh, let me just read this to you because I'm try to paraphrase it. I'll mess it up. It says the schism, which is an actual tearing apart. Heresis, or that word divisions, which is heresies, may represent a divergent opinion but still be part of a whole. One can hold different views than the majority and remain in the same body, but he is a heretic. However, when he tears himself away, then he is schismatic. We don't want to be schismatic, do we? <laughs> um, heresy may lead to schism, which is when actual tearing off and separation occur. So what, what am I getting at? What is Paul or what is this person getting at here? Um, we're not a cult here, okay? I don't have, you know, a check at the door. Okay, do you believe this or this or this? Sign on the bottom line, you know, and, and now we'll allow you into our fellowship. We're not in a cult where everyone has to think the same. There can be differences of opinion. And in fact, I'm sure if I were to poll you on certain issues, there would be differences of opinion in our fellowship. There must be, or, or maybe there will be differences in opinion. But here's the point. Those differences doesn't have to lead to division. 
It doesn't have to lead to division. You know, you may not agree with what I believe as far as eschatology. You know, the, that's the prophecy regarding end times. You know, uh, there's different views of eschatology. You may not have the same opinion, but we don't have to be divided over it. Uh, gifts of the Spirit. Uh, uh, which Bible translation you use, or the style of worship music, or you know, should we even have children in the sanctuary? There's some churches that don't allow children in the sanctuary during worship, and uh, you know, is that an issue? Or or women's roles in ministry? Should women? What kind of role should they have? There's differences of opinions in those things. Uh, Christians and alcohol use—that's a big thing. You know, where do you stand on that? And I don't want anyone to share right now where you stand on that. But, but those things, we can have differences of opinion, but they don't have to lead to division. He says, there, are also, there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. You see, God allows factions in order to weed out false doctrine from true doctrine. See, I mentioned that there can be differences of opinions in this church and in any church. That doesn't mean that the different that everyone's opinion is right. Okay, you may have a different opinion, and it may be wrong. I may have a different opinion. I may be wrong. I don't think so, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably you don't either, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't hold that opinion. Um, not everyone is right. Everyone's entitled to think for themselves and hold their own opinion, but your opinion may not be right. But hopefully, as you and I grow together. And as we're studying the Word of God together, those incorrect opinions will just hopefully just fade away. And you know, I've actually seen that. I've, I've known some people that have come into this fellowship with some really strong opinions that personally I believe were unscriptural. And you know, it's not like, okay, you don't believe the same way. You're out of here, man. You're not even allowed. To. No, we welcome you in. As long as you don't cause a division, that's, that's an important thing. You know, I've seen in some individuals over time, I've seen the Word of God transform them, and, and now they believe the same way I believe. Now they're right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But it's fun to watch the Word of God transform people. It really is. And so hopefully as we grow together and learn God's Word together, those incorrect opinions will eventually fade away and uh, give way to the truth. Now, having said that, I will say this, my personal opinion is that church leadership should be united. We should be on the same page with regard to these opinions. I would say almost universally. Why? Well, the reason why is because leadership has a sphere of uh, influence and representing the church and, and, and we communicate truth or we, uh, we uh, excuse me, communicate our opinions. And so if there's divergent opinions, if one leader believes this, one other leader believes that, and we're both communicating, man, that can cause confusion. And I think it can lead to divisions as well, which is not good. So what am I saying here? You can hold a difference of opinion, 
but it shouldn't lead to division within the local body of Christ. And I have a few examples. I'm going to I'm going to uh, change the names. Actually, I won't even give you the names to protect the innocent. But uh, we've had some bad examples, and uh, you know, actually, we've had more bad examples than good examples, unfortunately. But let me give you uh, a bad example. Uh, there was an individual that was involved in a ministry here. They got involved in a ministry here locally, and uh, its name was Jonathan House, and and maybe some of you are familiar with it or not. And uh, um, I didn't know a whole lot about it, but I found out that this person that was getting involved with it was causing a division within the church. They were pulling people to this ministry. I'm like, well, I don't know anything about this. So I started doing some digging into their teachings and what they believed. And I'm like, man, that's not scriptural. That's not biblical. I, I went through their whole thing of the beliefs. I'm like, man, they're, they're off in some places. So I was concerned. And uh, so this person, you know, we had to sit down and talk with them. And like, you know, if you're going to hold that, if you're going to be, you know, don't pull people into that because I think it's wrong. And so that person ended up leaving the fellowship. We had another individual years before that that actually came out of one of the Bible colleges. And uh, they, they became evangelists for Calvinism. And they would pull people aside and try to try to pull them into their you know their what they believed and stuff. And it was running contrary to what uh, we were teaching here at Calvary Chapel. And and there was again they, they were causing division. Um, it was okay that they have different opinions, but not to cause division. Now those were a couple bad examples. Let me give you a good example. There was a, a, a while when we were going to do uh, we were having a kind of a fellowship and we were going to do some baptisms, and. Uh, there was a couple that was attending our church for a while, and, and uh, when I announced that we were doing baptisms, this, this fellow called me and says, hey, Pastor Don, can I meet with you? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he met with me, and, and through the course of discussion, it turned out that he didn't believe in the Trinity. He believed that it was God the Father and Jesus, and the Spirit referencing it, the, the references to the Spirit in the Bible was just the Spirit of Jesus. And so there wasn't three in the Trinity. It was, it was the Father and the Son, basically. And that was his opinion. That's what he had gleaned from Scripture. And, uh, but, you know, he said something to me, which I thought was, was awesome. He says, you know, I don't want to cause... And he said, literally, he says, I don't want to cause a division at Calvary Chapel, so I'm going to leave. And, you know, I, said, I, I told this individual, I said, you know, I so appreciate your attitude because rather than trying to pull people and cause division, he just said, you know, I, I have a different belief and I'm going to leave. I'm going to be the one that leaves. I'm not going to try to pull anybody. So most of you, probably all of you, didn't even know anything about it at the time. We just like, where did this person go? And I, I don't know if I even shared why, but maybe I did. I don't know. But uh, his desire was not to cause division. And I told him, I said, you know what? I said, if you change your mind and want to come back to this fellowship, you're welcome anytime." Because his heart was in the right place. I'm not so worried about the facts. I'm, I'm more concerned with the heart. And his heart was in the right place. So I said, you know, so that was a good example. Um, so verse 20. Therefore, going back to what Paul is telling the Corinthians. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So what was going on here? It seems that the Corinthian believers, they would gather together frequently, as the New Testament church did, and they would uh, commemorate the Lord's Supper as the Lord instituted, you know, communion, we call it. But they would combine it with an agape meal, which was basically like, they, well, agape meal literally means love feast, but it was like a common meal. It would probably be in some ways like our Wednesday evening koinonia meal. 
That's, I consider that an agape meal. It's a, it's a love feast. We get together, we fellowship, we enjoy each other's presence and stuff, and we're eating together. And so it seems like that's what the Corinthian church was doing. And then they would tag on communion with this feast, with this agape meal. What's Paul saying here is, though, although you profess to be eating the Lord's Supper, how you're doing it is not at all consistent with the purpose and the spirit of the Lord's Supper. And he'll explain, verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now consider the culture of Corinth. There was an upper class, which was wealthy, uh, very powerful. Uh, they probably owned slaves. And then they had the lower class, which were the poor, and it was probably included slaves. In the Roman Empire, the classes were well-defined. You knew where you were in there. there was, I don't believe there was any middle class in the Roman Empire. It was either you were wealthy or you were poor. Well, the church of Corinth was made up of both classes because people were getting saved that the spirit of God was touching slaves and slave owners wealthy were coming to faith in the Lord the poor were coming to faith in the Lord and that was what was the body of Christ there in Corinth so these believers are coming together it would be going against the culture remember they've been called out of the world it'd be going against the culture that they were uh, raised in what they believed and what they saw all around them not only that, but the religion in Corinth involved pagan worship. We've talked about that in, in earlier chapters. Pagan worship combined with drunken orgies. Um, now, in the church in Corinth, orgies were not taking place, thankfully. But evidently, many of the Corinthians, they still liked their alcohol. They, they, had, they felt, I guess, they had the liberty to drink. And so they had wealthy people that were eating uh, and they would bring food to this common meal, and, and they were evidently eating the food that they brought. And the poor, they didn't have anything, and so they were coming to this meal. But the, the rich people, the wealth, they were eating everything, and the poor were just there going hungry. Because that, that's the culture that you lived in, in, that, in Corinth in there. And then those that had the liberty to drink alcohol were drinking to excess, and they were getting drunk at church. What's the core issue here? The core issue was self-indulgence and self-centeredness. That's the core issue. It was, it was uh, becoming manifest in how they were doing this, as Paul describes in verse 21 and 22. But the core issue, like I said, was self-indulgence and self-centeredness. You know, here at Calvary Chapel, Rochester, we don't allow any alcohol at any events. So uh, hopefully we'll never have an issue with someone being drunken at a, at a church service or anything like that. Uh, if they've come, they've drank somewhere else. So they, you know, we, don't have, we don't allow alcohol at any church events here. And we don't have slaves in our church. Now, you might feel like you're a slave to your employer, but you know, in the sense of true sense of slaves, we don't have slaves here in our church. <clears throat> So the contemporary issues of Corinth, it may have been different than what you and I face here in Calvary Chapel. But the core issue, the core issue is still the same, self. 
because we all deal with our self, right? We all deal with our flesh. Um, let me give you a couple examples where, and you might go, ah, oh, he's really kind of nitpicking, but let me give you a couple examples where I, I kind of sense that self kind of rears its ugly head, even in our fellowship. I remember one time <clears throat> we had a family that uh, we're gonna have, was gonna have a birthday party for one of their kids that was part of our church, uh, and uh, they asked to join our koinonia meal and combine it with a birthday party, and I said, yeah, that'd be fine. Um, well, so we started, they were running a little bit late, but we started our coin and a meal, and, and then the wife came over with this great big pan of chicken, fried chicken, man, it looked fabulous. And, uh, and I knew, because they told me that a lot of their family was coming, but they weren't all there yet. And uh, we had kind of started our meal. Well, uh, they came, and I mean, we pretty much devoured most of the chicken before the other people even had an opportunity to eat chicken. I'm like, oh man, I feel so bad. Um, on Wednesday evening, and this has happened on a few times, I'd rather go hungry myself on a Wednesday evening and just go home and eat dinner than to see some, a visitor come and not there's not enough food to feed him. I would rather just, you know what, I'll just, I'll just not eat and I'll eat something when I get home, have a bowl of cereal or something and go to bed. Um, I'd rather do that than see a visitor leave hungry. Um, there are times that are coin and emails. Those of you that attend, you know this. Sometimes food is slim for whatever reason. You know, people are working, they don't have time to make something, or maybe they can't afford to make something. And I, I understand that. Uh, those times, though, personally, and I know I'm speaking for my wife too, we just won't eat anything or we'll eat very little to make sure that there's enough for whoever's there so that there's enough for everyone there. It's kind of funny. I, I, uh, uh, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, my immediate family, we, you know, everybody kind of, you know, was very kind and generous to each other and stuff. And uh, I started to get involved with a, our extended family holiday meals. And there was this one relative. And I learned, I, you know, it took me about one or two holiday meals, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas meal or something to learn that you didn't want to be behind this person in the line. <laughs> because this person, if they got in front of you in the line, you'd be lucky to get any food because they would pile up their plate with food and you'd go, and you'd go, hey man, there's like six people behind you, but they don't care. They just, ah, I'm just going to get everything. And you go there and like, wow, the potatoes are all gone. It's like, you look at the plate and there's like this pile. It's like, whoa, man. I learned pretty quick, man. You got to get, make sure you get ahead of that person, because otherwise you're not gonna, you're not gonna eat. Um, it's funny, but that's true. I know for some people, bringing a dish to share on a Wednesday night meal is a sacrifice, uh, and I totally get it. I don't want anyone ever to feel like they're obligated to bring something. And we always say that, hey, somebody says, you know, especially if they're new and they say, uh, you know, I don't know. I said, you know, don't bring anything. Just bring an appetite. There'll be enough food. We'll make sure there's enough food. So there's never an expectation on anybody. I don't want anybody to feel obligated uh, to bring something. You know, I've got a, a, a pretty decent tent making job right now. And the uh, Lord's been blessing us. It actually, the contract expires here in August. So I don't know if it's going to be re, you know, re, reset or whatever. Um, but prior to that, after I got laid off from my other tent making job, bringing meals on a Wednesday evening, it was kind of a sacrifice. It was a financial sacrifice. Those that, you know, 
I, I'm assuming it is for others as well. It can be a financial sacrifice. But for us, it was something we were always joyful to do. I, mean, I love bringing food and, and uh, blessing people and, and just that fellowship. Um, there'd be times when we'd make a double batch and uh, we, you know, my wife's a great cook and she'd cook something and she'd like, I'm gonna make a double batch. If there's anything left over, hey, we'll eat it for the next meal. It's like, that's awesome. And uh, you know, it, if we had a, a bigger crowd than normal or maybe we had less dishes than normal, Man, we're so thankful that we brought a double batch because then it, it helped, you know, to make sure everybody got fed and stuff, and that that's great. Um, but sometimes, you know, if if everybody ate their fill, it'd be that'd be awesome. It's like that's cool. I mean, that's why we brought it. But we always thought, you know, well, if it doesn't get eating, you know, it'd be nice to bring it home and have a have a second meal because you know I don't know about you, I like eating leftovers. We had a family, or we know a family, we're, we're kind of sort of related to them <laughs> through marriage. And uh, at their house, man, they don't eat any leftovers. And we would have a great meal, and, and we help them clean up the dishes, and I'm like, wow, man, that'd be great for, and I just watch them scrape it in the garbage. I'm like, you're throwing that in the garbage? They're like, yeah, we don't eat leftovers. I'm like, wow, what a, I'm thinking what a waste, but I'm also thinking, man, I would have I would have ate it tomorrow. <laughs> but anyways. Um, where am I going at with that? Well, you know, sometimes we'd find at the end of the night that, uh, you know, after everybody's eaten, understand this, after everybody's got their fill, that all of a sudden it's like the food's disappearing. And it's like, well, what's going on here? Um, you might think, man, Pastor Don's really bringing up some petty things. And uh, you're right. In light of eternity, it, it is petty. It's, it's very small. In fact, it's not that big of a deal. But I think it does highlight an issue with self, um, you know, with being self-centered, making sure I'm taken care of first, you know, not thinking about others around me, because that's really what self, being self-centered is. Um, there are times, and I'll be honest with you, there's times when it feels like the Wednesday evening thing is all about food. It's just, it's the food, and uh, it's not all about the food. In fact, the food is just the vehicle to bring about the fellowship. That, that's all it is. It's, it's just, it's there. That's, that's why I don't, even have, I don't even have to eat. I'm just glad that we get together and share a meal and have fellowship because that's what it's all about. It's not about the food. But sometimes I feel like with some people, it's, it is all about the food. Um, you know, I, I've had this before. You know, we, we start the meal at 6.30. I try to give everybody a heads up around 7.25 or so. 7.30, I, you know, I want to be, I want to honor people's time. And I know some people, you know, they work in the morning. I, I, I want to be punctual at 7.30 and start, you know, and get done by 8.30 so that people can go home. Because I know, you know, people, you know, they, they, they like to get their sleep and get up in the morning. And I understand this. So I try to, I try to, uh, keep that in the back of my mind. We just don't have an ongoing thing for hours and hours and hours. I try to, I try to keep it closed. And so when 7.30 hits, man, I'm like, okay, guys, we got to get into the fellowship because I want to honor those that, you know, they, they want to get going home at a certain time. And so sometimes I've had it where, you know, I'm, I'm saying stuff, the kid children's ministry, they're trying to get ready to, and there's people just sitting there talking and they're ignoring me. And I'm like, wow, I can't judge people's hearts. But I can tell you, it feels like, it feels like it's all about the food. Now, Corinth, that's what it was. In the church in Corinth, it was all about the food. 
they were, it was like just, hey man, it's a glutton fest. Let's just eat up and drink up. And they didn't care about anybody around them. It was a dinner party on steroids. And so Paul says this, what, do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. See, how they were, the, how they were conducting themselves with these agape meals was not at all consistent with the purpose and the spirit of the Lord's Supper. Now, when I was here earlier, I don't mean today, but a couple weeks ago, and we were teaching the beginning of this chapter, Paul was trying to find some positive things to say to the Corinthians before he was started providing correction in verses 1 through 16. He starts out praising them. But here in this section, he says, man, I have nothing to praise you for. Why? Because there's nothing redeeming about being selfish. Nothing redeeming about being self-centered and thinking about me, myself. Verse 23 for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. Nowhere in scriptures are we commanded to observe Christ's birthday, just his death day. And we always celebrate our birthdays, but we don't celebrate people's death days. But Jesus, we don't remember, well, we celebrate Christmas, but in scriptures, we're not commanded to celebrate, you know, his birth, but we are his death. So we, you know, the, the, the modern Protestant, new, you know, church in our generation in the in this year you know most churches like ours we celebrate the lord's supper in a very somber atmosphere maybe too somber i don't know it's not saying that that communion has to be a joyless sacrament it's like okay we got to get all you know uh, start grieving and mourning that's not what communion's about in fact it should be joyful it's just, you know, I think a lot of churches don't combine it with a common meal, probably because of the, what happened in Corinth. So he says here, he talks about the bread. Jesus took the bread, broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. The bread, it symbolizes Christ's body. It symbolizes his life that was given for us. And if you think about it, that's the ultimate opposite of being self-centered, giving your life. You think about this, and I don't know when, you know, we can speculate, but I don't really know. But at some point, Jesus as a little boy or maybe as a teenager or, or maybe, you know, an adolescent, at some point in his life, Jesus realized that he was the Lamb of God. You know, it wasn't like he was 20 and someone sat down with him and said, son, I got news for you. <laughs> You're going to have to die on the cross for the sins of the world. No, he knew that. In fact, when he was 12, right, when he was in the temple, he knew he had to be about his father's business. And so at some point, uh, you know, for us, I, I know growing up I had this aspiration. Of, you know, I wanted to be like a secret agent or something. It was just fascinating. I love Mission Impossible. I love the James Bond. You know, I want to be a secret agent when I grow up. I want to do something cool like that. Uh, some people wanted to be doctors. 
Some people wanted to be cowboys or you know, whatever it was, whatever you wanted to do. We, we have aspirations and dreams for our lives. Think about this. Jesus' aspiration was to die on a cross. That, that's, that was his goal in life. That's, that's the ultimate opposite of being self-centered. Jesus' aspiration was to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the wine symbolizes Jesus shed blood on the cross. You know, I, I kind of, sometimes I think about, you know, these uh, lawsuits that are going on regarding the death penalty. And, you know, it's like people are complaining that it's cruel and inhumane punishment to be received. You know, you, they give you barbiturates and then they, then they give you the, the drug that actually stops your heart and stuff. And, and people are, uh, you know, suing because it's, it's humane. Listen, Jesus didn't die humane. They didn't give Jesus anything to numb or to, to, to not have him. I mean, he suffered excruciating pain. In fact, the interesting thing, that word excruciating, you ever said, man, uh, hit my thumb, man, that's excruciating. You know that word? It comes from out of the cross. That's what it means. It came from Christ's crucifixion. So next time you have something and you go, man, that's excruciating, think about that. That, that's, that means out of the cross. He suffered excruciating pain to the point of death to suffer for you and I um, so that you and I wouldn't have to pay the price for our sin. You know, it isn't just that Jesus just shed blood. Sometimes I think, well, he just shed blood. It's, he shed blood for us, like, like he got beat up and he bled a little bit, and that's, that's it. No, he shed blood to the point of death. It's his death that makes atonement. For our sins, and it's the blood that was shed, uh, up to, including death. He died for you. He died for me in my place and in your place, where we should have died. He he died for us. So it's his blood that shed that washes us from our sins that provides that forgiveness. And it says, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and passed the cup. That word thanks, by the way, is the word where we get the word Eucharist. So you ever heard of, of having the Eucharist? It just means thanks. That's what, it, that's what it's referring to. Um, he broke the bread and passed the cup, and he gave it to all. So no one was excluded from the Lord's Supper. So consider the scene in Corinth. Okay, just, just think back for a few minutes. The Corinthians were celebrating communion probably, I don't know for sure, but probably at the end of their agape meal. And the rich were full and drunk. The poor were hungry. And then they were celebrating Christ's selfless sacrifice through communion. They were breaking bread during communion, which implies they were distributing to the bread uh, after they had selfishly indulged in a meal, and now they're now they're passing out the bread for the communion. It just it just how they were doing that meal. It just it it's not the spirit of the Lord's Supper, dying and giving yourself for somebody else. Paul says you're not eating the Lord's Supper. In other words, by your actions, you're mocking the very spirit and meaning of Christ's sacrifice. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When you and I are partaking in communion, we're preaching a sermon, even without saying a word. And so Paul's word to the Corinthians is, what message are you preaching in what you're doing? Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
That's kind of a heavy verse, isn't it? There's some people that I think make a mistake in, in this verse and they think, well, I need to be worthy to partake of communion. I've got to be in the right place to partake of communion. That's about the same as saying, you know, I need to be healthy before I go to the doctor. I don't want to go sick. I've got to make sure I'm healthy. Or, you know, hey, my car's, I've got to fix that car before I bring it to the mechanic. <laughs> that seems silly, doesn't it? But sometimes we feel, well, I've got, got to be worthy to partake of communion. What does that word unworthy mean? It means irreverently. Not relevant, irreverently. Uh, it means to be doing it in an unbecoming manner. Treating the Lord's Supper as a common meal. That's basically what it's referring to. And so verse 28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So it says, let a man examine himself. And what he means is not in order to prevent him from partaking in an unworthy manner. In other words, examine yourself, and boy, if you find something, you better not partake. That's not what Paul is saying here. It's just the opposite. The Lord's not trying to keep people away from communion with them. He just wants their hearts to be in the right place. Now, some churches, and we don't do this, but some churches hold what's called closed communion. In other words, you can't, if you come in off the street, you're a visitor, you can't partake of communion in their church. Because I think probably because of these scriptures here, they're afraid of uh, either themselves eating and drinking in judgment or letting someone else partake in an unworthy way and bringing judgment. In other words, if someone comes in and you know they're, they're not worthy to partake communion in some sense and then they partake because I've allowed them, I'm guilty. And, and, and so some churches, that's what they believe. We don't, we, we've got to make sure that you're right with the Lord before you partake of communion. I, you know, I can respect it. We, we don't do that here. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, if he's your Lord and your Savior, you're invited to the table. Because I don't think Jesus holds anybody back, personally. He says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. That word judgment, uh, it's, I can't even pronounce the word, but it, it's a temporary judgment. It's distinguished from another word in the Greek that's in the Bible that deals with condemnation. So in other words, this temporary judgment, it's intended to save the person from condemnation. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Um, those who are partaking of the Lord's Supper at Corinth in a drunken, self-indulgent, self-centered manner, they were receiving a temporary punishment or a judgment in order to keep them from being condemned. What do we call that? We call that the chastening of the Lord. That's what the Lord does in our lives. We, we end up, you know, he disciplines us. He might punish us, but it's not for condemnation. It's actually to get us to turn our hearts back to him. The Lord wants us to come to a state of repentance and return to him in a right relationship. So why were they receiving this judgment? It says that they were not discerning the Lord's body. Now, there's different beliefs regarding communion. The Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation. And uh, uh, 
uh, those of you that are Catholic, can probably, I'm sure you could explain it better than me, but basically the, the, the wine and the bread are the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, am I right? Those of you that can, that's kind of what, okay. Um, Lutherans, on the other hand, and there's a, a, major, there's a large uh, population of Lutheran churches here, they believe in consubstantiation, and I'll be honest with you, we went through a class because our kids were going to a Lutheran school in California, and, and uh, we had to sit down and go through this class, and the, 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 they were explaining communion, and I, I was like, I didn't quite get it. I still don't quite get it, but it's similar to what the Catholics believe, only a little bit different. Zwingli, um, he's a, a Protestant for many years ago, and I think a lot of Protestant churches believe that communion is symbols. It's symbolic, uh, the bread and the wine. But what's interesting here, Paul says that they were receiving this judgment because they weren't discerning the Lord's body. So what does he mean? If you think about it, there was another time in the, in the Bible, in the gospel, where believers did not discern the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know that story? You guys know it, right? Um, there, uh, Jesus had died and rose again from the dead, and, and there were some disciples that they were traveling, and they were all down in the mouth because Jesus, who they were following, he was their rabbi, you know, he was talking about being the Savior. He had died. And then some people had made some, gave him some rumors, some women said that he had risen from the dead. You know, you can't believe women, you know, and stuff. That was their attitude, right? They're walking down, and Jesus comes up alongside them and says, hey, guys, why are you guys so down in the mouth? And you know the story. They're like, man, did you just come out from under a rock? Didn't you hear what happened? And, you know, everybody, all, everyone knows what's going on. And so Jesus, it says, along the way, he just started revealing Scripture to him. Just, he started with Moses and going all through the Old Testament, showing all the places where, hey, that points to me. That points to me. Or the points to Jesus, you know, the Son of God. Uh, and yet, at that point, they still didn't discern it was the Lord. But here, I'm going to just read this to you. Luke 24, verse 30. It says, Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them. At the end of the night, they, he was going to act like he was going to go on. They, were, they said, Hey, stop in and have a meal with us. So he went in. So he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? It was in the breaking of the bread or the communion that they discerned the Lord. See, I think Zwingli is right. I, if, if I was to lean with any, any belief, I think he's right. The bread, when we partake of communion, the bread is still bread. It doesn't change in anything. The wine, and in this case, we don't do wine. We have juice. It's still juice. But Christ, nonetheless, is still present when we partake. It's a mystery. I can't explain it to you. But he's still, he's present in the communion celebration. In fact, that's the most intimate time of worship, I believe, is communion. When, we're, when we're, we're just reflecting on his sacrifice and what he did with us, I think he's there with us. I know he's there with us. See, it's not just a dead symbolic ritual. We had uh, a family member, and uh, his name was Guido. And he was Catholic, from Italy, Catholic, Roman Catholic. He thought all the Catholics here were way too liberal. They're not like the Catholics in Italy and everything. And it was kind of funny. But um, talking to him one time, we were up there visiting. Uh, and uh, I said to him, Guido, <laughs> why do Catholics eat fish on Friday? I mean, I, I, I really didn't know. I didn't grow up Catholic. And he basically said, because Jesus ate fish. <laughs> I'm like, oh, OK. 
And I think there's probably a majority of people that believe that. You know, that's why we eat fish on Friday, because Jesus ate fish. Listen, it'd be the same today if someone were to come up to us and go, hey, why do you guys partake of communion? Well, it's because Jesus had communion with his disciples. That's it? That's why you do it? That's a dead ritual, isn't it? I think in the context of verses 21 and 22, you know, the, 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 the Corinthians, they were having this dinner party where it was self-indulgence, selfishness, drunkenness, and then on the end of this thing, they were tagging on this dead ritual. For them, it was a dead ritual of just somehow feeling like, well, now I've, I've met my spiritual requirement because we've done the communion. We've done what the Lord's commanded, basically. The Corinthians were not discerning the Lord's body that he was present with them in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And as a result, they were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. I don't want to spiritualize. Some of you are sleeping right now. <laughs> judgment. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want to spiritualize this verse, and I, I think there's, we can, there can be a tendency to. Listen, I believe in Corinth, people were actually getting sick because of this sin, and they were actually dying as a result. But I also think that there's a spiritual application here in a spiritual sense. When you and I substitute real intimate worship with the Lord with just going through the motions, it's a dead ritual to us, I think that our faith becomes weak, and it becomes a dead faith in a spiritual sense. Now the Lord may not choose, at that point the Lord may have no choice but to chasten us. If that's our, if we're just going through dead rituals all the time, it doesn't mean anything to us. The Lord will chasten us, I believe. Why? To punish us? No. To bring us to a place where we are back in a right relationship with Him. That's what the chasing of the Lord's all about. And so verse 31 he says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. See, a proper self-examination, if we would examine ourselves, it would save us from the Lord's chastening. Chastening is not pleasant. I've been chastened before. You probably have too. It's not fun. I would rather not be chastened. I would rather not, I would rather not have that be what draws me to the Lord. I just want to, it's his kindness that leads me to repentance, not his judgment. So I need to do a self-examination. I need to ask myself, am I self-centered? Am I selfish? Is, am I the center of the universe? I need to ask myself those things. You might say, well, it's easy to say, no, I'm not selfish or I'm not self-centered. But let me ask you this, and I'm just going to go through a few things. And I want you to reflect. I want you to just reflect. Are you selfish? Are you self-centered? And listen to this. Are the personal pronouns that I use most in my sentences are me, myself, and I? If that's what I usually do, it's always, I always got to say myself or me, myself, or I. If those are the personal pronouns that I use mostly in my sentences, it's something to think about. Do my needs need to be met first before anybody else's? I gotta make sure I'll, I'll, I'll meet other people's needs, but not until I first gotta take care of myself and then I'll take care of you. It's something to think about. Or how about this? My feelings matter, not yours. You can hurt my feelings. 
Or, I mean, I can hurt your feelings, but you better not hurt my feelings. My feelings matter, but yours not. Or how about this? My opinions matter, not yours. I don't care what your opinion is, but let me share my opinion. My time is more important than yours. You know, I tell you, that, that's one thing that always sticks on me. In fact, even now I'm looking at the clock going, oh, I better hurry this up. But time is valuable. Man, in our day and age, it's really valuable. You know, I, I just, I want to respect people's time. But some people think, you know, my time's important, but yours isn't. Or how about this? I have to be recognized by others when I'm present. You walk into a room and it's like, they better recognize that I'm here. They better start talking. They better acknowledge that I'm here. Because if they don't, man, I'm offended. If that's your attitude, maybe you're self-centered or selfish. Or this one, I'm never wrong, never at fault. There's always a justifiable reason for why I do what I do. If you confront me, hey, this is why I did it. I'm never wrong. Last one, what's in it for me? Hey, how do I, how do I benefit out of this? If, if you think about those things, those are the things that we should ask ourselves. Am I selfish? Am I self-centered? And I think those are the things, do, do I see myself in some of that? But if you and I refuse to honestly judge ourselves, we are open to the Lord's chastening. And his chastening can be painful, but it's the purpose is that we wouldn't be condemned with the world. That's, the Lord loves us. When we were raising children, you know, we had to chasten our children. And some of their punishment was painful, physically painful sometimes. But it was, I didn't, I wanted them to not turn into rotten children. I didn't want to turn them into rotten, selfish adults that only think about themselves, that are rude to people. So we would discipline them when that tendency was there because we loved them. That's why. That's why we discipline our children. If you're a child here and you're being disciplined, hey, your parents love you. Verse 33 and 34. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So we don't even know what that is that he set in order, but he dealt with more stuff in person there. See, Paul here brings it back down to some real practical advice for their agape meal. Put others ahead of yourself. Even in the simple, you go, man, that's such a petty thing. Even in the simple thing as, as, a, as an agape meal, our flesh can rise. It, it reveals itself. Our flesh reveals itself in the things that we do, how we do things. You can tell if a person's selfish or not by how they do things. And so Paul says, hey, just, you know, wait for people. Don't, don't, don't you know, be the first in line always. Now, Minnesota, sometimes it's funny. So Minnesota, people are this Minnesota nice thing, right? Everybody's standing there like, nobody wants to eat. It's like, come on. Go to California, everybody wants to eat. <laughs> it's just different cultures. But um, Minnesota nice sometimes can be a hindrance too. So, um, But, you know, the whole point is thinking about others ahead of myself, putting others ahead of myself, even in the simple act of eating a meal. So back to the question I asked in the beginning. Our coming together should be for the better. Well, let me ask you this. The better for whom? And hopefully we know the answer, right? The answer is others. Putting others ahead of myself. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord.